uh, well, we are going to go ahead and continue uh, our study through the doctrines of grace, but particularly looking at these warning passages and how to how to deal with the warning passages. We started that last time. We're going to continue and do a very brief review for those of you who are not in here. We're going to uh, get into uh, some of the new material today, but let's pause and uh, ask for the Lord's help, please. God, we're thankful to be here today. As we consider these things, we pray that you would give us wisdom in a spirit of humility, uh, but some of these warnings and conditionals would help to sober us, um, to know what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God, um, and understand the purposes of these warnings, these conditionals in our lives. We're thankful for them. We're thankful for things that keep us on the rails in your providence. Give us ears to hear, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, okay, and so... Um, we finished up the scriptural support for perseverance of the saints. Then I read four kind of chair texts, kind of paradigmatic instances of um, admonitions and warnings. So there's a lot of passages in the New Testament that are if this or you had better do this or this will happen. If you deny me, I will deny you. He who endures to the end will be saved. And so there are these, whoever takes part in these, you know, in an insert vice list will not inherit the kingdom of God, those kinds of things. And so there is a question about how to understand the warnings and the admonitions, the conditional statements of the New Testament. Um, the first one that we mentioned, and I'm, we're not going to talk about it very much because I think it's refuted by the entire first half of <laughs> The point here is the conditional salvation uh, perspective on these warnings. I, Howard Marshall, John Wesley, Jacob Arminius, and many other contemporary uh, Arminians, and that is that the warnings clarify that someone can just lose their salvation, plain and simple. That's what it is. Okay, the fact that there are warnings means that it's possible warnings towards eternal damnation. Do not do this or you will be denied by God, but denied by the Father. This is a plain and simple indication uh, that people can, in fact, go from a state of grace back into a state of con uh, of condemnation. Ultimately, as one of my pastoral, one of my pastor buddies says, forfeit their salvation. Uh, not going to really talk much about that one because if you were to say, well, what do you think is wrong with that point of view? All of the texts that we already looked at, that's what I think is wrong with that point of view. And that this particular perspective has to go back to all the texts we look at and tell very interesting stories about how not everyone who is called is raised up, right? In John 6, had the golden chain in Romans 8. Not everyone who is justified is glorified. I know our inheritance is not kept for us in heaven and on and on and on. The second view, which is more popular and is the view of the Grace Evangelical Theological Society, is also the view of the grace, uh, the free grace movement. If, you're, if some of you are familiar with that, and that's the loss of rewards view. That's that, that's, this is the view that says that the warning passages clarify believers can suffer eternal loss, but not eternal damnation. So on this view, these are two different things. Remember, and it's based off 1 Corinthians 13, the man who builds on the foundation that Paul has laid with wood, hay, and stubble, and all the rest of it. And then his work will be tested, and his work, if it's crummy, will be burnt up, but he will escape as one coming through fire. And so the idea is there that you know, everyone will be saved on the foundation of Christ, even if your work's all burned, uh, are burned up, as they say. Failure to obey as a Christian may result in a costly loss of heavenly rewards, but no matter how one lives, they cannot lose their salvation. And so continuing in our race analogy metaphor here, 
um, you have warnings and admonitions, raise doubts about receiving the prize, but the prize is not salvation, it's rewards. Okay? And let me add one more justification for this view, is people will say, well, listen, uh, they, they really are, well, you know what? I'm going to evaluate these in a second, so I'm, actually, I'm not even going to say that part yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. I just want to present the views first, and then we'll talk about We'll talk about it, okay? Loss of rewards view. Now I have gotten us back up to where we stopped last time. Any questions about, uh, not so much the first one, but any question about the loss of rewards understanding of the warnings and admonitions? Yes, sir. So the unbeliever, they would say, so they would say that the First Corinthians 3 passage, that's what you're talking about, right? Okay, so they would say that it refers to a believer because it's addressing believers, and it says that that person is ultimately saved on the foundation of Christ, but it's someone who's saved as they're like kind of passing through the fire. Everything they have to offer was, is not really very much. They don't show any fruit or they show very little, or there's, and I think probably the best interpretation of that passage is everyone probably has a combination of those things. But the point is, there's a foundation that gets someone in, but then there's rewards that refer to kind of degrees of heavenly reward, which I think is also, I think there is a, a theology of that. But the, the, the other the conditional salvation folks say, no, it's just someone losing, forfeiting their eternal salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Any other questions about the loss of rewards view? So just, let me just read Charles Stanley's quote again to really bring this home. This is in his on his book. This is in his book on eternal security. If a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retur- retain their salvation, for God remains faithful. Okay? This is the view that is really pushed back against by the, if you've heard about the lordship salvation versus the free, this is the, the lord, lordship salvation is kind of pushing back against this free grace understanding of things, saying that you can't have Jesus as Savior but not Lord of your life as you live it. And it's saying, no, uh, you know, Dr. Stanley, simply mistaken here. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. How quickly do I want to move on? So I'll say this part here. Um, one final motivation for the loss of rewards view of the warnings is that people is a genuine desire to preserve salvation by grace alone. You talk with people who hold this view and they'll say, listen, if you're saying that obedience is somehow required in any sense of the word, that fruitful living is required in any sense of the word, on top of, you know, having faith and repenting and believing, then you're saying that something about our salvation is, is works-based, is meritorious. Okay, and that's not the case. It's purely grace. And so they're, uh, I think it's mistaken, and I'll tell you why later, but it is, they're not people who are just trying to be silly. They're people who are trying to say, uh, listen, if you're saying that obedience is necessary after repentance and believing, you're saying that repentance and faith isn't sufficient to save you. You've got to obey afterwards. You've got to add works to faith, and that's not salvation by grace alone. Okay? We'll talk about that later. But it is an impetus for this view, uh, because when you read things like this, you might think, who on earth would believe that? 
Well, this is why I'm trying to give you a try to be sympathetic with why someone will hold a view like this. All right, let's turn to the third view here. And this is far more popular among the reformed crowd that opposes the free grace movement. Uh, and this is the test of genuineness view. The test of genuineness view of the admonition and warning passages. So the, this view looks at the warnings and says this. Admonition and warning passages are designed to distinguish true believers from false believers and call us to examine ourselves to see whether our own lives give evidence of genuine spiritual life in Christ. They also clarify that those who fall away or bear no fruit give evidence that they were never saved in the first place. That is what the admonition and warning passages are designed to do. They are supposed to help us identify in others and in ourselves those who are genuine Christians, and it's supposed to clarify that those who fall away were never actually believers. So Lewis Johnson's quote here, he says, but what about the if? We're talking about the if, the conditional warnings in Scripture. He says, what about if, we hear someone say, it's not the whole program of jeopardy, meaning the whole program of eternal security, perseverance of the saints. Does it not all depend upon us, ultimately? Suppose our faith fails. He says, now we must not dodge the ifs of the word. They are tests for professors. If faith fails, that is the evidence that the faith was not valid, saving faith. On the other hand, the genuine believer will persevere in faith, not by human strength, but by divine strengthening. So here's our doodle for this one. And notice, this is a very clever representation of this. It's very accurate. Someone is running the race, but they run their race with their back to the finish line. Notice how the, the orientation of the runner here. Okay? The, you, this is a race, but everyone runs it with their back towards the finish line. Warnings and admonitions call for retrospective and introspective self-examination to assess whether one is already saved. The prize is salvation, eternal life, though. But it's kind of like this. So so a microphone might cut out a little bit here, but everyone, if you're listening up there and, and online, too bad. All right, so it's like someone's running, right? And you can see people, and when you see someone drop out, you're like, oh, they were never really in the race. And you don't know if you're going to make it to the finish line in one sense, you know, you might say, well, even if, if I drop out of the right, Dr. Piper at one point, no, he doesn't hold this view, but he said at one point, if, if I apostatize, apostatize at a certain point in time, it'll just prove I was never a Christian. So everyone runs the race backwards, knowing that hope and security and final salvation, right? I don't know why you, you wouldn't cross your chest running. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm about to be baptized or something. I'm not sure. Okay. But the idea is you're running a race, everyone's behind. And so when you, these warnings and these admonitions are tests for professors, and they help distinguish dropouts from non-dropouts, okay? Um, that's what the warnings are. This is, the, so we are to understand the warnings and conditionals as analytic statements about the kinds of people who are genuinely in the race and how to identify them. We are to understand warnings as just effectively communicating analytic statements about the kinds of people who are genuinely in the race, namely people who bear fruit and so on. Okay? A race that everyone runs, but you kind of run looking backwards. You look back at your own life. I examine myself, the life I've lived up into this moment, to see whether I'm in the face, 2 Corinthians 13. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Ah, oh, there's someone who departed. 
as we all back, back our way into salvation, so to speak. Okay, any questions about the test of genuineness view of the warnings? Is that fairly clear? Who thinks it's not clear? How can I explain it better? Everyone's perfectly clear. I know someone's I know someone's lying. That's okay though. Okay, let's continue on and we can if you have the courage to ask a question later, you certainly you certainly can. Um, all right, the fourth view is it takes by far the most straightforward approach to the loss to the uh, warning passages and it's the hypothetical loss of salvation view. Here's what it says. Admonitions and warnings clarify that if believers do not continue in faithfulness and fruitfulness, they will not be saved, but that failing to continue in faithfulness and fruitfulness is impossible because of election and the Holy Spirit. So here's the doodle. Uh, do I have a doodle or a quote first? Okay, Homer Kent's quote. It might be tempting to weaken the final punishment. By the way, it says Hebrews 10, 29. Uh, uh, he's talking about Hebrews 10, 29 there. The one who's profaned the blood of the covenant. If people, someone was put to death on Moses on three witnesses. How much more? Okay, that's what he's talking about. He said it might be tempting to weaken the final punishment to make it less than loss of salvation. But this expedient has not satisfied many in light of the nature of the offense. A more reasonable explanation would seem to be that the passage warns true believers what the outcome would be if apostasy would occur or could occur. Okay, that's why it's called the hypothetical loss of salvation view. So the warnings do point to something that would genuinely happen. But because of election and because of the Holy Spirit, that's actually not possible for that to happen. But it would happen if people abandon the faith. So here's the doodle for this one. Warnings and admonitions only caution what would happen if one could fail to endure to the end. And the prize is uh, salvation, eternal life. Okay? Before we pause for evaluation, let me mention one solution. Uh, and, and by the way, I haven't got to my preferred solution. I don't, I don't prefer either of the, any of these, by the way. Um, but before I, before I move to evaluate some of these and talk a little bit about them, let me just say there's another solution that doesn't fit cleanly into any of them. I, I mean, you could kind of, uh, and, and I should say some people overlap some of these solutions, but one solution that doesn't fit cleanly into any of them is the view of our Presbyterian dear brothers, uh, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, who say that the warning passages are genuine warnings for people who are genuinely in the new covenant and you can genuinely fall out of the new covenant. But being in the new covenant just doesn't mean you're a Christian. Okay? It's one of the typical ways for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters to explain Hebrews 6. What's well, a warning for new covenant members? Because you can fall out of the new covenant. It just You just were never a Christian. And remember, if you, go, if you want to go back and look at our uh, biblical framework study or the baptism study, uh, one th the, the fundamental thing, one of the fundamental things that distinguishes the ecclesiology of Presbyterians and Baptists is that Baptists think the new covenant is a covenant of all and only believers, whereas our Presbyterian friends believe that at least in its current form, it's a mixed bag. So unbelievers are in the new covenant. And so their, their understanding of the warnings is, well, it's addressed to new covenant members. And new covenant members can fall out of the new covenant. That doesn't mean a Christian can fall away from grace, though. There are non-Christians in the New Covenant. All right, so it doesn't fit cleanly into any of these, but you could, you, could see, uh, you could see, nevertheless, some of these being used in certain instances. Any questions before I evaluate some of this? Okay. 
So again, I told you I'm not going to talk a lot about the conditional salvation view um, of the warnings. Uh, it seems to take seriously the enormous body of passages. And, 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 and we only, when we read a lot of passages, that's only a small representative sample of what you could, what you could turn to. Okay? Going back and reinterpreting all of those passages based on the warning saying it seems like a case of the tail wagging the dog. Okay? I think we have really, really good reason to believe uh, in the perseverance of the believer uh, and so when we come to warning passages that are not necess- that are not explicit teaching about the endurance of the believer, but are doing something in letters and all the rest of it, it would be very odd to overturn theology on account of that, okay? Uh, let's talk about the loss of rewards very briefly as well. Um, although there certainly will be heavenly rewards, the warning passages seem to clearly threaten more than loss of rewards. The warning passages and the admonition passages don't seem to just threaten loss of rewards. Not every single warning passage can be read in light of 1 Corinthians 3, okay? It it can't just be some kind of reference to that. For example, being not denied before the Father. That's that's one of the warning passages. For if we go on sinning deliberately, this is the Hebrews 10 passage that Homer Kent was writing about. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth— There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That doesn't sound like a loss of rewards. That sounds like a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume. Again, I have up here, not inheriting the kingdom of God. So the idea that all of the warnings just refer to loss of heavenly rewards instead of gaining the kingdom itself, which, by the way, the, our, uh, the folks in the free grace movement have a different, in that you will not inherit the kingdom of God there. They don't think that means, like, inherit the new heavens and new earth, eternal life. They have to come up with an alternate understanding of what that phrase means, which I think has zero independent plausibility, but they gotta, they got to say something there to keep the view up in the air. Again, I think the strength of the view is that it does try to do justice to the eternal security passages, and it does try to do justice to salvation by grace alone. It really is concerned by this. We do not want to introduce any kind of fruitfulness, any kind of obedience after repentance and faith. And that's why they say you can live kind of however you want. Refer you back to that Charles Stanley quote. You will still be saved regardless of what happens. Your, your, your salvation is not threatened. Jesus is your Savior. Whatever happens after that is icing on the cake in heaven. But otherwise, we end up with salvation by, uh, by, uh, by works or something. We're contributing meritoriously. Okay, um, again, I'm going to explain why as we, as we continue to go on. Uh, I think I'll, no, I will explain why I think that's mistaken. All right, let's talk about the test of genuineness view. You know, I was thinking through this. I was like, hmm, which one of these views are most people, as I go through them, going to say is the most plausible? And I, I think probably the test of genuineness view, if people had to like, not that anyone has to select one. Um, I, think, I think that's what I would have guessed. Okay, let's talk about this, though. I know that kind of is a nightmare slide, but just read that bottom paragraph with me here, Okay. Although we will certainly know them by their fruit, and those who abandoned the faith were certainly never saved to begin with, it's difficult to understand how admonitions and warnings teach these things. It's not that they're not true. 
It's good theology. But is that what the warnings teach? This view turns admonitions and warnings into formulas for retrospective and introspective analysis, not genuinely future-oriented imperatives and threats. And that's generally speaking how we think of what a warning is just in general. If I say, hey, don't get on 24 going into town after 6 o'clock, I'm not calling you for introspective analysis to see if you've ever done that. I'm trying to affect your behavior for morning traffic for your own mental health. Okay? <laughs> for Michael Willis's mental health. Let me get up earlier. Um, the, the attractive part of the test of genuineness view is that it, what it affirms is theologically true. No reformed person uh, disputes any of this. People who abandon the faith were never saved. Yes, we will know them by their fruits. Yes. Is that what the warning passages teach us, though? Or do we learn that from other passages? Okay, that's the idea. Let me do a case study. Let me do a quick case study from Mark 13, 13. Okay, Mark 13, 13 says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This is kind of one of our paradigm examples here. The test of genuineness view says this, that the verse helps us understand that if one is saved, they will endure to the end. That all saved, truly saved people endure to the end. Again, theologically true, but that's not what the verse says. It's not what it says. It says, if one endures to the end, they will be saved. Not if one is saved, they will endure to the end. Two different things. Two different things. John MacArthur, speak, talking specifically about this, um, he says, Jesus, speaking his disciples, said, it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That's not what that says. Now, at first glance, that appears to contradict the truth that God is going to keep us saved, but it doesn't. We are energized to endure by the indwelling Spirit the mark of justification. Here's that test of genuineness view coming out. The mark of justification is perseverance and righteousness to the very end. So Tom Schreiner, who along with, um, oh, what's his first name? Kane Day, Richard Kane Day, I don't know. They have the gold standard I think, uh, book on perseverance of the saints. I don't think there's any work written better, especially addressing the warnings. Schreiner comments on MacArthur's comment on Mark 13. Listen to what Tom Schreiner says. Oh, so I say Tom Schreiner like everyone... Tom Schreiner's a big deal, okay? He's author of probably the, 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 the most well-respected commentary on Romans in the last 50 years, world-class uh, New Testament uh, theologian and scholar. Okay, Schreiner says, This is a remarkable comment, characteristic of many Calvinists, which he is one. For without realization or intention, anyone who explains the text this way inverts the two elements of the conditional promise. This explanation essentially reads the text as saying the one who is saved will persevere to the end. This is both biblically and theologically accurate. But the text does not say that. It is a good case. It is a case of good theology from the wrong verse. Instead, the text says the one who perseveres to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? Now, some of you are thinking in your head, 
wait a second. All right, you're trying to like put it up in your head and switch the antecedent with the consequence. Say, what's the difference between the? What's the difference? Here's the difference. One provides a necessary implication of being saved, enduring. If you're saved, all true people who are truly saved endure. That's one understanding. One provides a sufficient causal condition for making it to the end by enduring. If you endure, do this, and you will get to the end. One just says, if you get to the people who get to the end at the end of the day will have ended up doing this. Two different things. Okay? The, the test of genuineness view does give us a great test for genuineness, but it isn't clear it gives us a great view of the warnings. Of the warnings. And remember, that's what we're talking about. All of what it says is true about the believer, but it's not clear we learn that from the warnings. It seems to take them, and I have this written down exactly like I wanted to say it, so that's why I'm staring at my uh, screen here. It takes the warnings and conditionals as static theological statements for retrospective analysis instead of dynamic admonitions Um, uh, 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 it takes them as static theological statements for retrospective analysis instead of dynamic admonitions used to shape the thought and actions of individuals and congregations. And that's how what that's what we think of when we think of warnings. When we warn people, when we're warned, people are trying to shape your actions and behavior in the way you think about something, right? Have you ever warned someone against something and you expected them to like, Think about something from the past, you know, like introspect. It's like that's just not what a warning is. You warn someone to affect them moving forward. It's not retrospective. Okay. Finally, the hypothetical loss of salvation view. Um, this view does take seriously both this kind of future orientation of the admonitions and the warnings. But it doesn't provide any reason for us to believe uh, why biblical authors would warn Christians about something that's purely hypothetical. Like, do you generally warn people about things that could never happen? What are you saying? Yes. You... <laughs> okay. Yes. Fair enough. Okay. So, so the the hype. The, the, what's really attractive about the hypothetical loss of salvation view is like there's no gymnastics around approaching the warnings. It is saying, this is what would happen. If you abandon the faith, you will get denied. Period. And then it just says, because of the Holy Spirit and election, that first part, the antecedent condition, isn't possible to be actualized. Okay? So that's the really attractive part. What's not so attractive is it doesn't tell us any story about why we're getting warned about impossible things. Like, well, you could have saved your breath, read us, you know, told us more about... Uh, you know, Paul in, in uh, third heaven or something like that, okay? Okay, and the cr critique of the Presbyterian view uh, that uh, is kind of beyond the pale of this particular module. I don't have time to go critique the Presbyterian understanding of the New Covenant. Go check out our series on baptism or the biblical frameworks. Okay, so before I present what I think is the most promising way to deal with these passages, which is most similar, I'll say, to the last one, uh, the hypothetical loss of salvation, it's most similar, but that's not it. I want to pause and ask if there are any questions about any of the four views or about anything I've said 
in um, analysis of them thus far. And if you have a question, probably someone else does too. So don't, don't be afraid of uh, asking one. Any, any questions? Okay. So, I think there is a better way forward. I've been heavily influenced by Shriner and Kane Day on this particular position. I think they are the most careful. I think they take the warning passages straight in the face, straight on the jaw, uh, and yet they tell a very, very, uh, I think, extremely plausible story about how to think about these things. So I know, again, oh wait, do I have the, uh, here we are. I know that's a paragraph, but I, 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 I could have just not put it and read it, but people like reading as I hear. So just read it together. God uses the admonitions and warnings of Scripture as a mechanism and means to preserve the elect. Though the lost threatened in such passages is eternal damnation, true believers will be effectively called to final salvation by such warnings and thus never experience the horrible consequences of failing to do so. Warnings and admonitions encourage us and inform us of the means by which God has declared that we will reach final salvation by enduring. So let me, um, I'm going to mix up how I have things in my manuscript here. So if I confuse myself, just give me a pass. So um, there are two definitions of a hyper-Calvinist. Okay. One definition of a hyper-Calvinist is someone who's more reformed than you are. The real definition of a hyper-Calvinist is someone who believes that because of God's sovereignty, evangelism is not necessary. But what has God done? He has chosen an end, and then he has appointed certain means to accomplish that end. Namely, making disciples of all nations. And that's the mistake of the hyper-Calvinist. God elected these people. It's like someone who took one philosophy class and thought they were smarter than everyone. God elected everyone. Therefore, what God, God has elected will come to pass. Therefore, I don't need to do evangelism. But God has chosen means to bring about his ends. What I am suggesting, what Schreiner and Cain Day are suggesting, is that the warning passages of Scripture are part of the means, a primary means even, that the Holy Spirit uses to cause believers to endure. They actually play a real role in, in accomplishing perseverance. On this view, the warnings of Scripture and even the conditionals, which are often warnings, uh, function like the warning label on a bottle of poison. You see the big scary label on a poison bottle with the skull and crossbones? Does that simply, does that merely inform somebody that there is poison in there? Or is it designed to actually keep people from interacting with it in certain ways? Okay. Doesn't it do more than just merely inform? Isn't there a larger purpose for sticking it on there and just instead of putting poison, like putting a skull and crossbones and like baking it red? And it's supposed to affect somebody. Um, let me give you another example. Uh, my son and, well, now both of them, huh, are um, they like to play everywhere with no regard for what's going on around them. And that includes when I'm cooking hot things in our undersized kitchen and the stove's on, I've got my big griddle up there and my kids are like putting their hands up on the thing. And so, so don't, I, say it, I was about to say imagine, you don't have to imagine. I have said many times before, will 
Don't put your hand up there. You will get burned. Okay, now, when I do that, am I merely conveying information? Here is a scientific fact, son. When such a person as you and I comes in contact with something very hot, burn is there being getting burned as a result. No. No, no, no. That's not what it does. It does it doesn't just communicate information. It accomplishes something in his behavior so much so that many times he's been walking around and he's about to put his hand up and I go, "Hey, it's hot." And he'll go put his hand down. You see that right there? That's what I'm saying. The warnings play a role in actually affecting his behavior. It's a means it actually does something. It actually accomplishes something in his behavior. And I'm suggesting that warnings in Scripture do real work in the life of the believer. And, 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 and what that real work is, is it plays a role in the light of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in directing believers to salvation. So the salvation is, the loss is hypothetical, but what this view gives us as a reason for why we would ever be warned about something that's not possible, it's because the warnings themselves make it not possible. Is like a jet up? Was like an explosion right there? The, the reason we're getting warned about something that's not possible, it's because the warnings themselves, because they are part of the mechanism, is what makes it. Now, it keeps us on the track, so to speak. So it's not just some silly hypothetical, it's a hypothetical um, that that has uh, that is effective. Um, let, let me see here. How much more do I want to say on at this particular point before I go to some examples? Yeah, so let me. So if you, to get your hands around this, think about some other ways eternal security could have been accomplished. Um, you could get saved immediately and then have a perfectly righteous heart, no indwelling sin. God could have set it up that way. We're talking about alternate universes here. I get it. I get it but I'm just trying to help you understand the means. Here's another means that God have, could have preserved believers. Right when you got saved, you got a glorified body, or like at the very least, a sinless, completely sinless heart that we all look forward to actually having one day. But because you had a completely sinless heart that was resilient towards sin, you kind of were inhabiting this world, yes, but you were doing so kind of like Jesus. And it wasn't possible uh, for you to... Uh, abandon the faith, you'd never even need to be warned because you would you couldn't possibly sin. It'll be you, you kind of like the in new heavens and new earth. God could have done it that way. He didn't. That would have been one means of preservation. Here's another way of preservation. Um, you get saved, and all of a sudden, right when you get saved, you get heavenly sandboxed. You get heavenly no, no, quarantined. Okay, and so you get kind of tucked away in a place where there is no sin, or that you can't sin, or something like that. And there's never any temptation. There's no sin around you. Um, and maybe that was part of the way he made sure that people who initially were saved got to the finish line. Although I think I could probably mess that up myself without any external help. But my point is, you can seek, think of different mechanisms by which God could accomplish the following. The people who are justified end up being glorified. He could have done it a couple of ways. What I'm suggesting is the way he chose to do it, the means that he actually chose, as opposed to the means that he could have chose, is using warnings as part of the element that keeps believers on the track here. Okay? 
Let me just say something else. You'll notice, oh, here, look at, look at the doodle I drew for y'all on this one. Um, warning, so here's the, yeah, here's our little track. Notice how the person is looking forward. Warnings and admonitions call for faith that endures to receive the prize. And the prize is salvation and eternal life. Now, notice this split between the already and the not yet. We've talked about this before. This view, this means of salvation view, takes very seriously that there is part of salvation that we actually don't have yet. You see, all of the other discussions proceed as though salvation is something, or most of the other ones proceed as though salvation is something that happened exclusively in the past, and now you're just holding on to it. This view says, wait a second, justification in one sense, yes. Okay, there is a final, there's a, there's a final aspect to it. I feel like I've worn that out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but, but, but salvation is a larger concept. Larger concept. And in fact, we, we are waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed. I mean, this is over and over. There is something that is going to be revealed. There is a final salvation. So salvation is this larger aspect. So th- this view says the warnings aren't to guard you against losing something that you got back here. It's to urge you forward to the final consummation of salvation up there. Not up on the screen, sorry. It's not, warnings are not merely means to help preserve something that you got back here. Because the salvation, overall salvation from justification to glorification is a process, and we're not to the glorified state yet, okay? It is calling us genuinely to something that is genuinely forward. That's why Paul says, what, in, in uh, Philippians, I, uh, I press on to make, that, uh, to make it my own. I strive toward the upward call of Christ. I, and not that I have obtained it or have already been made perfect, but I take hold of that which has taken hold of me. Remember that? He hasn't made, been made perfect. He is striving toward something. There is something future. And this view of the warning says it's not guarding something, a deposit merely that's been back, given to you back here, although it's part of it. It's calling us toward something we genuinely don't have yet. It's guaranteed to us, but we genuinely don't have it yet. That's why Paul says he hasn't attained it yet. And that makes a lot of sense in, in understanding how it could actually be calling us forward instead of merely guarding something from the past. I know that might be a little bit... Of, I think that's really important. I know that might be a little um, confusing. Does, that, does anyone have a question about that? Yeah. 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 So good. So let me just talk about it real quick. We got three minutes left, and that's perfect time to answer that question. Um. Yeah. So we think of salvation as something that will happen at the end. Uh, happen at the very end. Okay. We will be saved on the last day, but we are saved now, and we are being saved. Scripture's got language, the same verb used for all of those things. Saved, being saved, will be saved. Salvation has been accomplished. It's being accomplished. That's why I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Wait, what? (gasps) Okay, 
We are gonna we, we, we want to hold to the things we were taught when we were saved. We are waiting for a salvation that's yet to be revealed. I haven't attained it yet. I'm pressing on towards saved, being saved, will be saved. And so when people say I was saved, that's not theologically incorrect or something. What they are doing is they are referring to a particular time slice on the larger story of salvation. Okay? Salvation, again, from regeneration, I have a quickened heart that is caught that is even able to repent and believe, all the way to glorification includes everything in the middle, certainly progressive sanctification as well, is in this part of the salvation process. So yes, to Rex's point, when someone says, I was saved, great, that's not that's perfectly theologically acceptable. Great, you were saved. You're also being saved. I hope you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and I can promise you that you will be saved. All of those things are within the scope of salvation. And so, and so, um, it's critical on this view to understand that there is something coming ahead of us that we do not yet have and that we are pressing on towards. Okay? Um, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I, pr I press forward unto the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? Here is a, and that was, I think, a very, that was kind of a paraphrase there, if I'm honest. But, um, there is a future-orientedness to it, and warnings are, are, are calling us to be faithful on the way to something uh, that is guaranteed theologically, but is nevertheless future-oriented. And that makes a lot more sense. If I'm saying that a warning is supposed to affect how you move forward, you might have to think it's actually there's something that you don't have that you're moving forward to. Guaranteed theologically, but we're moving towards it. So uh, we're at time. I'm going to, when we come back next time... I'm going to give you multiple biblical examples of warnings and conditionals where the first part, the if, isn't possible. Okay? Where there are warnings that straightforwardly are not possible to like fail to, sort of, it's impossible to fail to heed these warnings, and I'll, I'll show you that. But you'll see why they're in there. Even the Bible itself has ex examples within the text of warnings that it expects people are going to uh, necessarily heed. So if you have questions, come ask me. Uh, uh, this is rich material, uh, but I understand that it can also be uh, a little bit confusing. Uh, please, uh, happy to talk with you through it. Let's, let's close in prayer. God, we are thankful that you hold us fast because we certainly would not hold ourselves fast, would find any way to mess up our salvation. We're thankful that we are secure in Christ. And we pray that when we look at these warning passages, we wouldn't try to do a theological dance, but that they would call us forward. That they would cause us um, to be careful about what we do, the kind of behaviors that we engage in, that they would help us live holy lives, that we would be pure, that we'd be presented blameless at the day of judgment. I pray that you would be with us in our next hour of worship and that what we do here this morning would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.